We've come to Joshua chapter 13, reading one, verses 1 to 23, and then 32 and 33 at the end of the chapter. Chapter 13 <coughs> begins the third major section of the book of Joshua. The first section, in which the key word was the Hebrew verb to cross, concerned Israel's crossing of the Jordan River and entrance into the Promised Land. The second section, whose key word was the Hebrew verb to take, concerned Israel's taking of the land by military conquest. This third section has two key words, the Hebrew verb halak, to divide or to allot, which occurs some six times in this third section, and the Hebrew verb yarash, to inherit or to occupy, possess, which occurs more than a dozen times between 13.1 and 21.45. This third section, as the key words indicate, concerns the division of the promised land among the tribes of Israel. Now, a very large portion of this third section of the book amounts to the delineation of the geographical boundaries of each tribe's allotment. We're not going to read all of that material, but this morning we will read a representative selection. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. The years of war are past, and it's time for the occupation of the land, for Israel to overspread the land and to settle in all of its parts. Joshua is now an old man. By most standards, he would have been pretty old when Israel entered the land of Canaan, but he was older still by this time. He wasn't as old as Bob Rogland, but then who is? <laughs> by the way, Bob, welcome back. This is the land that yet remains all, or this is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim in the south. All the land of the Canaanites and Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamat, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Mezrephoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have Commanded you, now divide this land for an inheritance to the nine and a half tribes, or uh, to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. Sorry. Um, now, although chapters 10 and 11 give the general impression of total victory, that was a generality. There was still a good bit of territory yet to be subdued. This included the land of the Philistines along the coast, some territory to their southeast the coastland to the north, and the territory of modern Lebanon. Some of this territory would not be brought under Israel's control until the reign of King David. And the Lord here, once again, for the umpteenth time, promised to give Israel success in taking those territories as he had given her success in taking all the territories she had so far conquered. 
wasn't Joshua's job to take the remaining territory. He was too old for that work, but he was responsible for the distribution of the land. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Now, the allotment of the land begins as the list of kings conquered in chapter 12 began with the two and a half tribes that would settle in the conquered lands of the Transjordan, that is, east of the Jordan River. And as we're going to read in later uh, verses, not in this chapter but later, the particular apportionment of each tribe's allotment was determined by lot, though exactly how it was determined by lot we are not told. From Oror, Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medaba as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and the Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Selakah. Now, Gilead is mentioned more than a hundred times in the Old Testament. It was a particularly fertile region of forests, of grapevines, of olive groves, and of fields of grain. All the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edrai, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. We have here the first indication of trouble to come. Some of the pagan peoples who lived in these conquered territories had not been dispossessed of their land. Nothing is said here in explanation of that fact, but we will read of still more Canaanites who remained in the land later in the book of Joshua and then again in the book of Judges. The implication seems to be that the Israelites didn't bother following up their military conquests as they should have. It seems that they wanted to get down to the business of living and enjoying their new home rather than continuing with the fighting. They were tired of it. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. We're going to return in a later sermon to the fact that Levi was not given an inheritance in the land, a fact that is going to be mentioned several times subsequently. The Levites were to live not off the produce of their own land, but from the sacrifices that the Lord's people brought to the temple. Now, the geographical description so far given covers the entire area that would be allotted to the two and a half tribes who would live east of the Jordan. The specific portion of it allotted to the tribe of Reuben comes next. Reuben will be first because, as you remember, he was the eldest of Jacob's sons and so the first tribe of Israel. Now, we're not told how the land allotted to each tribe was then further apportioned to the various clans and the various families that made up that tribe. No doubt... A somewhat similar process was used of casting lots, but we don't know how that was done. Apparently, only Caleb and Joshua, whose allotments we will read about subsequently, were allowed to request and to receive a particular portion 
of property. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben according to their clans. So their territory was from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by the Medaba with Heshbon, and all its cities that are in the tableland, Diban, and Bamat Baal, and Beth Baal Meon, and Jahaz, and Kedemoth, and Mezhath. If you think this is easy, just try doing it yourself. And Kiriathayim, and Sibma, and Zareth Shahar on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshemoth. Beth Peor was notorious in Israel's recent history as the place where, at the encouragement of Balaam, she had consorted with Moabite women and worshipped their idol, the Baal of Peor. And it was, you remember, from the top of Pisgah that Moses had surveyed the promised land before his death. That is, all the cities of the tableland and all the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi and Rechem, and Zur and Hur and Reba, the princes of Sion, who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with a sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. So the tribe of Reuben occupied the land east of the Dead Sea, or at least east of the northern half of the Dead Sea, and a little bit to the east of the Jordan River above the top, the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Uh, You can see all of that clearly if you consult the map in the back of your Bible. We'll skip the geographical description of the territories of the tribes of Gad and Manasseh, which move from south to north, east of the Jordan River, and uh, drop down to the concluding statement in verse 32. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Our Father in heaven, we want to hear this portion of your word as well. This too is a summons to our faith. Teach us how it is and write it upon our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now perhaps even more so than the list of conquered kings in chapter 12, which we read last week, these detailed descriptions of boundaries and cities to be found within them, may seem to the modern reader of the Bible not only tedious, but of doubtful value. Perhaps biblical scholars and those interested in the geography of Palestine would be interested, but what is here for the ordinary reader of the Word of God who opens his or her Bible to find help for living? But once again, all that is required is a little bit of imagination to appreciate how little this material would have struck an Israelite as tedious or as unimportant. In a very real sense, this is the most important part of the book of Joshua. It is this comprehensive description of the territory that now belonged to each of Israel's tribes that demonstrated that Yahweh had been as good as his word, that he had kept his promise, that the land was now theirs. 
What all of this detail was meant to emphasize was that it belonged, Canaan in all of its parts, and actually more of it, east of the Jordan, belonged to Israel. Every tribe had a portion of it. And it was that person's, that family's, that clan's, that tribe's to keep and to pass on to the next generation. She had been given an immense and an immensely valuable gift. As every Christian, every thoughtful Christian knows all too well, if only we actually appreciated what heaven is really going to be like and appreciated that the only reason you and I are ever going to be there when so many will not is because God loved us and gave us a place there as a gift. We would have chills passing up and down our spine every waking moment of every single day of our lives. But as every thoughtful Christian also knows, we have this intolerable, this damned, and I use the term advisedly, this damned capacity to take anything, even the most precious and wonderful and extraordinary things, for granted. It is our worst failing, yours and mine. And it is the mother of so many of the other failings of our lives. And it is the failing that we should make the greatest effort to remedy. This material in Joshua 13 and the following chapters is meant to remedy it. The most important business transaction that most Americans ever make, that most of you have ever made, is the purchase of a home. That patch of ground and the house that sits on it becomes so much more to you than simply a financial asset. It becomes, over time, the context of much of your life. All the sacred associations of home and hearth gather around it. It is the repository of so many memories, precious and painful alike, Your children know it, will ever after remember it as their home. Your newborns, you remember, slept in that room. Your mother or father, ill and dying, slept in that room. You first met the fellow who was going to marry your daughter, right over there in that corner of the living room. Some homes are even given names. But even if they're not, we refer to them by name. That house is the Pfefferleys or the Stipex or the Jacks, as if the building itself had taken on the life of its owners. But while we may speak of a home by the name of its owners or by its street address, that's not its official identification. The description of the house that you find on the deed is much more complicated and precise comes in language virtually unintelligible to anyone but a surveyor or an officer of a title company. I have a deep affection for our summer home in the Colorado Mountains, a place that holds for me many precious memories. But I can tell you I never think about it as a tract of land in township south, range 68, west of the 6th principal meridian, according to the United States General Land Survey, beginning at the southeast corner of section 19, 
thence 90 feet north, 40 degrees west, to a point being corner number one, thence 150 feet north, 10 degrees west, to corner number two, and on it goes. But that's the legal description of that precious place that has meant so much to me and to my family, a place of beauty and of love and of happiness. It's something like that that is before us here in this section of Joshua. The Israelites who first read this passage of Joshua or heard it read were very likely several generations removed from the actual distribution of the land. It had been their grandparents or their great-grandparents who first settled in those towns, on those farms that lay within the boundaries so precisely laid down in this section of the book. But there would have been no disinterest on their part as those boundaries were read out. All who were hearing the geography being described, the names of cities, the mountains, the valleys, would have been listening for their place. And when the reader came to that description, they would have thought, or perhaps even said in a stage whisper, that's my home, that's my place. Remember in the typology of Canaan, the promised land is an enacted prophecy, an embodied prophecy of heaven. Human nature being what it is and home being what it is to us, I suppose there will be something like this in heaven as well. In John 14, the Lord speaks of the many rooms or the many dwelling places in his Father's house and of his going to prepare a place for his disciples so that where he is, they may be also. We'll be asking one another, I suspect, where do you live? On what particular street of gold may I find your townhouse? And we'll visit one another and we'll admire one another's homes. And when Paul refers to our going to heaven as our going home, as he does in 2 Corinthians 5, he's trading on the precious associations we all have with the idea of home. Heaven is a perfect and final home. And if Jesus is preparing those homes for us, we can be sure they will be wonderful beyond words. Brothers and sisters, in a short while, you and I will be going home. That's the burden of this material in Joshua 13 in the chapters that follow. All of this geographical description of what finally was somebody's home. But there's another dimension to all of this that is also highlighted in our text and throughout this section of Joshua. The two verbs I mentioned at the outset, the Hebrew verbs to allot and to inherit, both convey the idea of inheritance, of land coming to Israel and each of its sections to various families of various tribes by bequest. That is, the vocabulary of taking possession of inheritance reinforces the fact that the transfer of this real estate and Israel's possession of it was a bequest from God. Israel inherited it, as it were, from her father. Yahweh owned the land, as he owns the entire world that he made, and he bequeathed this land to Israel. It was a portion of his estate, and Israel inherited it as the children of God. That makes a difference, doesn't it? That the land is an inheritance 
part of our family heritage. All of us who are older have had this experience to some degree or another. How possessions take on a deeper meaning and value. How we attach greater significance to them because they were owned first by our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents. I have a few books in my library that were owned by my grandfather, a Presbyterian minister who died in 1952, two years after I was born. I have no active memory of him, but I have long loved and admired him for his life and ministry because he was my grandfather. I have, as it were, his blood in my veins, Christian blood and the Presbyterian minister's blood. I have a copy of W.G.T. Shedd's A History of Christian Doctrine. It's a 14th edition published in 1902. On the first inside page, it has my grandfather's signature and a date. James Rayburn, September 1608. Shedd's history is still a book of some value, though I rarely consult it, but the value of the two volumes is out of all proportion to the value of their contents. Shed is still in print. If I needed a copy, I could secure one with a glossy paper cover over the boards. But it wouldn't have my grandfather's name in his own hand on the first inside page. I can't pick up a new copy and think that my grandfather opened this book and read from this book and used it more than a century ago. My library will eventually belong to my son. And in that library will be several books that were owned and used by his great-grandfather, as well as a much larger number of books that were once in the library of his grandfather, my father. The books will be of use to him, but they will mean much more than their usefulness by itself can account for. Indeed, learning from God himself, when I buy books for my library, I find that much of my pleasure is found in the fact that those books will someday be in my son's library. I also have in my library a three-volume folio edition of the works, the opera, of Bernard of Clairvaux, the great medieval monk of whom Martin Luther said he loved Jesus as much as anyone can. It was published, this particular edition of Bernard's works, in 1726. It's dusty. It's worn with age. I could get a newer edition with valuable notes and commentary, and it wouldn't be in Latin. I could get it in English. But this edition happens to have on the inside front board the book plate of J.B. Lightfoot, Anglican Bishop of Durham, one of, if not the, most consequential biblical scholar of the 19th century. Lightfoot was a true Christian hero whose scholarship was vital to the defense of the Bible against the skepticism coming out of Germany in those days. It was Lightfoot whose magisterial classical scholarship, his intimate knowledge of Greek and Latin, fixed the date of the writings we know as the Apostolic Fathers, Clement of Rome, the Didache, Ignatius, Polycarp, and so on. 
fixed their date to the early years of the second century. And since those writings cite on a number of occasions the books of the New Testament, in so fixing the date of the Apostolic Fathers, he established that all the books of the New Testament were written in the first century. Before Lightfoot, it was a commonplace of German scholarship to believe that the Gospels, for example, were written as much as a century and a half after the events they purport to describe. No wonder, then, that they couldn't be relied on for real history. After Lightfoot, nobody thought that anymore. The New Testament was written within the lifetime of those who were eyewitnesses of the Lord's ministry, his death and his resurrection. And three volumes of the great man's library, volumes that he handed, that he opened and that he read, now sit on my shelf. The fact that they belong to him makes all the difference to me. Well, so with the promised land, it's not mere real estate. It's not a home that they simply bought or took from someone else. This was land they inherited from their heavenly father. And for those who heard Joshua being read for the first time, and then for generations thereafter, even up to our own time, this has been a powerful reminder that the ultimate promised land is likewise our inheritance. It has been bequeathed to us by our Heavenly Father, and it has come down to us through the generations of our forefathers. Well, you say, my parents, my grandparents weren't even Christians. How could they have bequeathed the promised land to me? But as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, when talking about the promised land, about heaven, it's not physical, but spiritual ancestry that tells. These Israelites who took the promised land under Joshua, Paul tells the Gentile believers in the church in Corinth, these Israelites were your forefathers. You know how often this idea of salvation and of heaven as our inheritance surfaces in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, because he is the Son of God, the Son of God who made all things and owns all things, he is therefore the heir of all things. We read that in Hebrews 1. But for that same reason, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.17, the Spirit himself bears witness that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Matthew 19, the Lord said to his disciples that they will inherit eternal life. It's a remarkable thing to say when you think about it. We don't earn eternal life, certainly. But we're not just given it, either. We inherit it. Again and again, this language of inheritance reappears in the New Testament's account of salvation. It conveys many precious truths at once. Among them, that we have an estate that is promised to us, guaranteed, as it were, in our Father's will. That we will come into our possession because of a death. That of Jesus on the cross, a point made by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in his chapter 9. That the Holy Spirit is meantime the guarantee of our inheritance, since we do not actually take possession of it until later. 
And supremely, that what we are to receive is nothing less than our Father's estate, His possession, His home. Because we are, as Israel before us, the children of God. We are not simply the followers of Jesus Christ and the servants of God. We are His children. And being His children, we are His heirs. It's a metaphor, to be sure, but one with rich, impossibly rich meaning. In Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, we find some of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. You know them probably from the beautiful translation of them we have in the King James Version. In the ESV, David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That language, or much of it, you will immediately recognize, comes from this part of the book of Joshua. Portion harks back, as it usually does in the Old Testament, to the allotment of a particular portion of Canaan to David's family. My lot is again a reference to the allotted parcel of land. The lines that have fallen for me in pleasant places are the boundaries of his property. And of course, he says all of that again when he refers to his beautiful inheritance. But David also got the larger point. He was not really talking about a piece of ground, of real estate. He was talking about something that that ground, that real estate, that part of Canaan was a sign and a symbol and a seal of something higher, something more wonderful still. The Lord is my chosen portion, he begins. But that thought is here also in Joshua 13, in the remark at the end. In explanation of the fact that the Levites received no inheritance in Canaan, we read that the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. What Canaan ultimately stood for in the life of all believers, the Levites symbolized in their life. It is the Lord who at last is our home. It is the Lord who is our possession. It is the Lord himself who is all that is wonderful in our future. As the ancients used to say, he who has the one who has everything has everything. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, if we have Christ, all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Canaan or the promised land as the inheritance of God's people serves to depict both the glory of our salvation, the wonder of it, this impossibly happy, prosperous life in a beautiful and fertile land, and the way of that salvation as the free gift of our loving Heavenly Father in His will, and as the conquest of our warrior King, our brother Jesus Christ, with whom we are fellow heirs. We have hard hearts, you and I, but surely we know by now that we ought to be feeling chills up and down our spine. And for that matter, we ought always to be feeling chills. If you learn today that you are going to fall heir shortly 
to a magnificent fortune. You'd think about it, all right. You'd have a hard time thinking about anything else. You'd love thinking about it. You'd think about what it was going to be like when that extraordinarily large amount of money came under your possession, what you were going to do with it, how you were going to serve the Lord with it. Well, our inheritance in Christ makes a Bill Gates kind of fortune, as temporary as it is, peanuts, like the penny or the nickel that nowadays you see on the pavement, but it just isn't worth enough for you to bother to stoop down and pick it up. When my mother died a year and a half ago, we had a family meeting the night before the funeral. Most of the immediate relatives uh, were physically present, all of her children who are still alive. Some of the rest were present by phone. We didn't cast lots, but we divided her assets among us, her children and her grandchildren, in the case of my late sister, who has been with the Lord since 1996. So we simply took turns, each family making a choice in turn, starting with the eldest, like Reuben, and working our way down to the youngest, and when the youngest had made his choice, starting all over again. Mother had many beautiful things, some of which she had herself inherited, and many which came with a story known in the family, where that particular piece of furniture had been um, bought or from whom it had come, what country or what family friend. And many of those stories were known and loved in our family. Those things can now be found in New York City, in Baltimore, in Cleveland, Tennessee, in Vidalia, Georgia, in Florida, in Minneapolis, in St. Louis, in Colorado Springs, in Denver, and here in Tacoma, Washington. By and large, especially at the beginning, people chose the things they loved most, around which swirled for them the most precious memories, the things that were especially important to them. Sometimes two people wanted the same thing, as would invariably be the case, as must have been the case with the Israelites as well. They were admiring that valley and that farm, waiting for the lot to be cast, wondering if it would fall to them, but knowing that their cousin wanted the same piece of property. The choosing in order removed competition in the same way the casting of lots did for Israel. And mother had so many beautiful things that no one could complain afterward that he or she had not done very, very well. But every piece was the more valuable because it had been my mother's, because it was being inherited, because it was part of the heritage of our family. I can tell you also that some significant part of the pleasure we all felt in laying claim to one of those possessions or another was knowing that they would in turn belong eventually to our children and to our children's children. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you a member of the family, not a family, the family. And like every other son and daughter, 
you are in the will. And what a will. What an inheritance. Not a piece of furniture. Not a set of china or sterling silver, however beautiful. Not even a whole land such as Canaan. But the heavenly land. The everlasting city. The life that is the dream of every human being. And the one whom to know is life eternal, whose love will make you happier and holier than you have ever imagined possible. The Lord is your inheritance. No tranquil joy on earth I know. No peaceful, sheltering dome. This world's a wilderness of woe. This world is not my home. Our tears shall all be wiped away when we have ceased to roam. And we shall hear our Father say, Come dwell with me at home. Amen.